Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. Do grab a seat if you're uh, standing in the aisle. And uh, nice to see everyone. Thanks, Guy and Heather, for leading the start of the service. My name's Andy. If I haven't met you, um, part of the team here, I want to begin with prayer. Prayer for our hearts to be open to what the Word of God will be doing as the Holy Spirit comes. So it says in one of the Psalms, blessed are those, blessed are those, or the people who are going to flourish are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Lord, we seek you with our hearts right now. Thank you that we've had time to worship. Thank you that we've had time to remember the great acts of Jesus on our behalf. He is now our great high priest. He is the one who kept all of your testimonies perfectly. He is the one who walked with you without any blemish. And Lord, we come before you in his name and covered in his blood and and recognizing that he is our savior. And in him, we submit our hearts to you and ask you to speak to us through your word, Lord. Would you do it now, please, in Jesus' name. Um, How does every Mission Impossible film start? They're all the same. In the first 15 minutes of the Mission Impossible movies, The story kicks off with high-energy action moment, sequence showcasing Ethan Hunt's great skills, and then the team is introduced, his characters and his teammates for that that film. The mission is outlined, and then the tension builds as they face unexpected challenges, setting the stage for the main plot. That's how every Mission Impossible film starts, and in some way, that's how the Mission Impossible film of the Book of Acts begins. We're going to repeat our reading from last week and just add on two more verses, and hopefully you'll see similar themes going on. We've had this amazing array of activity, so much going on in the life of Jesus and his resurrection, and, and then the beginning of the Book of Acts, and you can't get more dramatic than really being taken up in a cloud, and then we're introduced to the main characters, um, and then we're, be, we're given the outline of the big plot, the impossible mission, and then the tension and is set. And we are going to be looking today at how do God's people prepare for mission impossible. So let's have our Bible reading together. So starting at the beginning, again, this is Luke writing, the guy who wrote Luke's gospel. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist baptized with water, 
but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before them, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And then on to today's Bible reading. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. That image in the top right is an image from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. A Sabbath day walk is a bit like a stone's throw. It's not a long journey. It's about one kilometer. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What makes this mission impossible? Well, there's multiple things. Firstly, there is the scale of the operation. If you think about it, we have a very small group of people with a very real knowledge of Jesus. Jesus encountered many, many people in his ministry, thousands perhaps. But from what we know of the New Testament's teaching is actually it was a smallish number that had encountered him risen from the dead, the most meaningful encounter you could possibly have with this man. Many of the people who had encountered him prior to his death drifted away, perhaps they took some of his teachings, but they didn't um, necessarily follow him to this place, Jerusalem, that prayer meeting. We know, we find out that there are about 120 gathering in this group. From another letter in the New Testament, we hear that at one point in those 40 days that we heard referred to, in those 40 days, at one point, Jesus appeared to around 500 people. So if we, go at the, if we just look at the scale of the mission that they've got, the mission, the plot, the outline of what they've been tasked to do is to tell the entire world about this man, Jesus. And at that point in time, with a little bit of help from ChatGPT and a calculator, because ChatGPT got it wrong. You shouldn't get it wrong. Let's go so that the estimated population in the world at the time was around 200 million people. Let's be optimistic and say 500 of those have had a meaningful encounter with the risen Jesus. So the task is to spread that to the rest of the world. If you're quick with maths, 
at that point in history, 0.00025% of the world's population had heard meaningfully about Jesus being risen from the dead. So that leaves 99.99975 with no meaningful access to the gospel. That is a big task for a small group of people to try and achieve. Not only that, but where Jesus said, you need to start and continue the mission, seems impossible. He says, begin in Jerusalem, then move out to the wider region of Judea, and then into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now think about the context. Each one of those locations brings with it an enormous challenge. Jerusalem was the city that had recently executed their leader. The wider region of Judea was really overseen by the religious establishment that were very anti this Christ cult. They viewed them as this little sect that needed to be wiped off the map. And then you head into Samaria. The Samaritans famously disliked the Jews, especially Jews that would come preaching to them about how their Messiah should be their Messiah. That wouldn't have gone down well. And then, if that wasn't hard enough, they're meant to spread it to the ends of the earth. And if you know about that time, the ends of the earth, the pagan nations, the other people, they had their own gods. They had their own religious traditions. They were happy. And you were being tasked with not only starting in the city that killed your leader, then spreading out into a region that disliked you as a people group. Then you had to go into the nations and try and convince them that the gods that they had been worshipping historically since forever should actually submit to the one true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mission impossible. We're going to get onto this as we go through the book of Acts into the different seasons. So season three, I'm quite excited. There's a really good book by a scholar called The Destroyer of Gods. How radically the Christian message upturned societies because of what it was, what, what was true at the core of the Christian message. But we're not there yet. We might be there in a few years. So this is Mission Impossible. And not only that, but think about the how Jesus has flipped it all around. See, the disciples asked Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, in his classic way, flips that round and says, that's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but you will receive power. He does this similarly in John's gospel. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus just quite likes to turn the the tables on people. Nicodemus, who was a famous, uh, at the time perhaps, famous religious leader, at least a man with authority, he came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we, the establishment, we know who you are. We know that you're a good religious teacher from God. Then Jesus goes on to change, to challenge everything that Nicodemus thinks is true and says, well, do you know you need to be born again? Even you really established religious leaders. You need a new life from God. You need to start it all again. You need a, to be born again. And then Jesus just subtly at the end says, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. 
Nicodemus had come to him and said, we know this about you, Jesus. And Jesus, with his ramshackle band of people who haven't got any of the religious pedigree, he says to them, we know. Jesus does this. I suppose that's the main point here is, even his disciples said, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, I'm going to give you power. So you can almost see the sun rising in their eyes, the, the dawning realization, oh, this is our responsibility. God has told us to go and do Mission Impossible. We don't get to just take Jesus into all the cities and say, hey, look at him. He is actually going to send us to go and do this. And I think this is still a real challenge because sometimes our prayers are, Jesus, could you just convert these people for me? Or Jesus, can you just speak to them? Or Jesus, could you just let them know about you? And you can imagine him saying, huh? No, no. I've empowered you to do it. I've given you the privilege and the responsibility and the authority to go into the world and do that. Don't abdicate this one. So Mission Impossible is set up. So how do you prepare for Mission Impossible? And this, I think, is the test that Jesus gives them. I, um, I, I enjoyed this. Um, there's an ancient church father, one of the early Christian writers, John, John Chrysostom, um, suggested this that I'd never noticed. See, Jesus leaves them on day 40, and the Spirit comes on day 50. The walk to Jerusalem is only about half a day's walk. So they've got quite a lot of time to do what? Now, we've read the Bible, some of us, so we sort of know, oh, it's obvious, isn't it? But would it have been obvious? I think Jesus is purposefully testing his disciples. And when God tests us, he's not tempting us to sin. He's not trying to get us to fail. God gives us tests in order for us to use what we've learned and in order for us to put into practice the stuff that he has taught us, and in order for us to enjoy the incredible privilege of experiencing the Holy Spirit working through us. And the test, I think, is set. Nine days for my disciples, what are they going to get up to? So there they are, heading into Jerusalem, and what do they do? Because if you've read Luke's gospel, you don't necessarily have high hopes for them. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a persistent widow, and it's all about prayer and praying for justice, that God's people should continue to pray that the God of justice acts, and then he will, definitely. And he is encouraging his people to be like a widow, persistently knocking on the door, and um, just... Or, or persistently going to the judge. And ju just a note as well. Jesus purposefully chooses a widow to illustrate his point, showing that no one is inconsequential. No one is unimportant in this. He invites everyone. It's not only the elites that God will listen to. But at the end of the parable about teaching people to persist, because the question is, will God ever answer our prayers? But Jesus asks a question at the end of it and says, actually, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Holy Spirit comes on day 50 at Pentecost, will he find that all of the disciples have gone off and are just having coffee around Jerusalem and enjoying themselves? And 
if you've read Luke's Gospel, you might think that is quite a likely possibility because there's a story when Jesus, just the night before, he's going to be crucified and executed, all around being betrayed and everything else. He says to his disciples, look, in Luke 22, he says, you guys need to pray. And actually, I think this might be the first moment when Jesus encourages a prayer gathering just for his disciples. And he says, you need to pray. Pray that you won't be given over to temptation. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. And then Jesus goes away to pray, and he prays so fervently that he comes back and his face is slightly red because he's been sweating, and even blood has got into the sweat. And he comes back to his disciples, and what are they up to? Oh, they're praying fervently. Yes, God, we believe. No, they're asleep. (laughs) They're sleeping. So, Mission Impossible. How do you prepare for Mission Impossible? Jesus recklessly allows his disciples for nine days to make a decision. He could have stayed with them until the day before and then said, right, I'm off. Stay here. Don't move. But instead, he allows them to go in and make their own choice. What are you going to do? What are you going to do in Jerusalem? Because he doesn't tell them to pray. That's the test. Have they learned their discipleship lessons? Have they been so formed by Jesus and so radically transformed by his resurrection that it suddenly starts to sink in and they've learned the lessons? And they do pray. They pray and pray and pray for nine days. And I imagine one of those days might have been a boring prayer meeting, but they continue to pray. And they persist in prayer, which is a lesson for us. We've got an exciting prayer meeting later, but prayer meetings vary in quality. Because we're humans. Some go on too long, some are too short. Some feel like it all went flat. Is that the point? These disciples demonstrate for the early church and for every church since what it means to persist in prayer And I think they do that because they've been shaped by Jesus. They've been taught by Jesus. When Jesus was baptized in Luke's gospel specifically, it says just before the Holy Spirit was sent upon Jesus, he was praying. And then the Holy Spirit pours out upon him at his baptism. And that's the beginning of Luke's gospel. And then at the beginning of the book of Acts, you've got Jesus' people praying and then the Holy Spirit pulls out on them. It just shows you a little bit about how Luke is going to write his second um, edition. A lot of the book of Acts is going to look like the book of Luke. This was Jesus praying, being filled with the Spirit, and then his people praying and being filled with the Spirit. So they've learned just the fact that they watched him, his own prayer life. Jesus so often, and again in Luke's gospel, it's especially clear, he so often goes off before a big event, before a big decision, before um, significant moments in his ministry, and he prays. But I've been struck by this, because all of the Gospels emphasize that Jesus goes off alone to pray. And I think this might be a lesson for us, because we're not Jesus. Now, we are meant to mimic and follow and be shaped by Jesus, but notice what the disciples do straight away. They don't all go off alone to pray, even though that's what Jesus did. They gather together to pray. 
And I do think this is a significant lesson. That actually, we collectively are the body of Christ, but no one in here is Jesus. That is not to dismiss the importance of praying on your own, and praying in your room, and praying in your, in your families or whatever, but at least what we get demonstrated here is, yes, Jesus went off to pray on his own. His people gather together to pray together. I think it's important. So they've seen that, and what's also quite radical in this, for the early, uh, for that context, that, um, sorry, that society that would have been reading this, there are men and women praying together, which wouldn't, I don't think, have happened in synagogues um, or in most of the Jewish uh, sort of traditions. Usually, men and women would pray separately. And there is an emphasis that men and women are praying together in this, which just shows how radically Jesus had already disrupted society. And then there's Jesus' own teaching about prayer, which we could look at, which is in Luke uh, 11. There goes my post, didn't it? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is in Luke 11. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, can you teach us to pray? As John the Baptist taught his disciples. And Jesus says to them, when you pray, sorry, I've missed two slides. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The more you dwell on that prayer, the more you will see you are praying for the impossible to happen, even the impossibility of forgiving other people. That God enables us to do the impossible as we pray. There's all sorts going on there, but I also just want to read the next bit, which is how then Jesus illustrates. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me, let me in, lend me three loaves because a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I've got nothing to give him and he will, and he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because the guy keeps knocking, threatening to wake up the whole family, his impudence, the man will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus has said, go to Jerusalem and wait. The Father will send the Spirit, and they have learned from Jesus' teaching, we need to pray. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever come across people who really miss the point, especially in preaching. When you look at a passage, you're like, well, that wasn't the main point, was it? I'm about to do that. What I want you to see from that, from that teaching also is that men can give you eggs. Did you notice? Jesus said, fathers will give their sons eggs. <laughs> Amen, let's finish. <laughs> men can give you eggs. Eggs are incredible. Eggs are something in creation that is just mind-blowing. Think about all the potential in an egg and how it's incredibly constructed. God's creation is marvelous, isn't it? Eggs are amazing. And what's maybe even more amazing is what human beings have figured out to do with eggs. You can make more animals. You can scramble them, you can fry them, you can parboil them or soft boil them. You can do so much. You can have an omelette. You can use it for pancakes. Eggs are amazing and men can give you eggs. The created world is incredible and men and women have figured out how to do incredible things with the created world. We can change the world because of eggs and everything else in creation that God has told us. You can get your hands on that stuff and turn it into the most amazing stuff. But what can men not give you? The Holy Spirit. The presence of God. See, our society is full of people who've figured out amazing things to do with eggs. But sadly, they've limited themselves to just the material world just what men and women can do and achieve. With our brains, with ideas, with concepts, with the physical world. And they've forgotten that they can never give one another the presence of God. Men can give you eggs, but only God can give you God. Only God can give you his spirit. And that, my friends, I think sets us up for our mission impossible. This um, video I'm about to show you is a sociologist and sort of philosopher, but he's also um, a behavioral scientist in Canada, Professor John Viveki. He's very well known in a certain pocket of the internet that I am a bit too involved in. Um, and I think what he has to say here is extremely interesting for us to just set, set what is our mission impossible um, of what's society like. Now, I understand this is probably more of a Western world um, thing, but I think it's probably spreading further as well. Um, let's see if this works. I want to start with the present. We're in the UK, 2019. Oh, sorry, I'll just... Just I want to start with the present. We're in the UK, 2019, a national survey, very comprehensive survey. 80% of people found that their lives are meaningless. Mm. Um, interesting, 43% uh, think that's because of financial reason, and that goes against a lot of the data that we have, that once your finances get you out of poverty, they do not contribute very much to meaning in life. Um, 34% uh, seem to be getting a little bit closer, at least in an intuitive way, when they, they attribute their lack of meaning to anxiety. And of course, uh, horror is exactly the aesthetic 
uh, when you feel like you're losing a grip on reality. So anxiety is on the same arc as horror. Most of our horror movies are not actually horror movies. They're just startle movies where somebody, something jumps out at you and scares you. But genuine horror movies, they give you a sense of what I'm talking about. No, anxiety is low-grade horror in that sense. So people are drifting along. And then what we can ask is, does, well, does that have significant consequences? And we know from the extensive literature on meaning in life, if you don't have meaning in life, if you don't have the sense of belonging, you're in serious trouble. Mm. You're in serious trouble psychologically, physiologically, socially, probably predictively, uh, your overall health, uh, probably your social economic status. It's predictive of lots of stuff going bad. Of course, it's ultimately predictive of anxiety and depression, which, by the way, are flip sides of the same overall disorientation, disconnection. So 80% of the population has this state that we have pretty comprehensive evidence is very deleterious to their health. And then you have a lot of sort of cultural sense that this is happening. Why, why did zombies become so prevalent? And the, the idea is zombies are uh, a, a myth gram that has arisen to sort of express, not necessarily articulate or explain, but express the meaning crisis. We'll think about them, right? Uh, they lead, by definition, meaningless lives. They've lost intelligibility. They can't speak. They move in collectivities, but they form no communities. They drift aimlessly. Unlike other monsters, they don't have any supernatural connection. They're just us, decayed, right, and perpetually decayed. They're a perversion of the Christian uh, myth of resurrection because they do not come back to the fuller life. They come back to the lesser life. And then they got, they got linked to another Christian myth, the apocalypse, which is supposed to be the renewal of the world. But instead, it's the ongoing endless decadence of the world. So the zombie mythology is a cultural expression of this. And you can also see all kinds of symptoms. Of course, we have the mental health issues. Uh, death of despair in the United States and the UK are becoming serious, serious problems. Uh, related phenomena, the UK has set up this Orwellian thing called the Ministry of Loneliness, which is like, <laughs> because the number of close friends we've been having has gone down. Uh, you get it in the virtual exodus. People want to live in the virtual world rather than the real world. They express this as an explicit thing. We've got the weird uh, political paradox that everybody feels disillusioned and disenfranchised, but the political sphere has been uh, and has been now uh, reappropriated at, and filled with religious fervor and symbolic religious behavior. And we've given over identity and the meaning in life to our political ideologies, even though we've lost faith in all of the institutions. This is weird thing. Let's go back to the the, the the video game. Well, what are they getting in a video game that they are obviously lacking in? The real world. Well, what they have is they have a narrative structure. There's a narrative structure that tells them what the story is and what part they play in it and orients them towards a purpose. So purpose. They have a nomological structure. What do I mean by that? They have a sense of, there's a set of rules, laws and rules that make sense of that world. So they understand how that world works. This is intelligibility or coherence. Second, that purpose, coherence. Third, what else is going on in there? Well, they have a normative structure. They know how to self-transcend. They can level up. There's a way in which self-transcendence is available to them. And fourth, they get into the flow state. They get into a state where they feel dynamically coupled and connected to their environment. Mm -hmm. 
So what do we have? These are the four factors of meaning in life. These are the things that you have when you have meaning in life. So coupled with that is the fact that we, so looking at the stats, God has done an amazing work. Going from 99.99975% of the world having no meaningful access to Jesus, the risen Christ and Lord. Now, if you look at the websites, it's around 50% of the world has no meaningful access to a knowledge of Christ, the risen Lord. Now, God has achieved a lot in 2,000 years. That is for sure. But there is still a long way to go. And then couple with that, even in the areas where there is a meaningful access to Jesus Christ, people are losing meaning in life. We have Mission Impossible ahead of us. This is Mission Impossible over again. There isn't a clever structure or strategy. In all my reading, preparing for this, there wasn't a 10-point sort of plan for exactly how we can achieve this. So what are we going to do? And I think that's the question before us as a church. Last week, the question was, will we go to Jerusalem or will we go to Galilee? It was a choice between being involved in the story or going home and enjoying our comforts. And this week, it is this question. Will you, will we be inevitable or be involved? By being inevitable, what I mean is this. Being the zombies, drifting along, losing a grip on reality, letting life just happen to you, just relying on fate and goodwill to get you in the right direction where actually the powers and principalities that are up there, whether those are political or social or economic, whatever they are, they have all the impact. They are the wind that is blowing you in one direction. And in the midst of that, there are people trying to create their own religions and create their own gods. It's like in the middle of a hurricane, someone trying to put up an umbrella and hold on to it. You either need to let that thing go or you're going to get blown away with it. So the choice is, and I think this is real for Christians too, are you going to be inevitable? Where just life happens to you, you just simply go with the flow, and actually you are not in control. You, you, You have no say in this. It's just happening to you. Or will you be involved? And to put it in... um, In other words, Shakespeare's words, to pray or not to pray is the decision. Prayer is the ultimate way for a human being to be involved. Eugene Peterson, who writes some amazing books, and in one of his chapters about being subversive Christians, he says this, prayer is subversive activity. It involves a more or less open act of defiance against any current regime. Their prayer gathering was an act of defiance against Jerusalem, which had recently killed their leader. They were praying together. Not, they weren't doing anything violent, but they were doing the most disruptive thing they could possibly have ever done. And in the end, it turned around Jerusalem. And that continues to be the case. He says, as we pray, 
slowly but surely, not culture, not family, not government, not job, not even the tyrannous self can stand against the quiet power and creative influence of God's sovereignty. As we get together to pray, nothing can stop us. Prayer is the difference between watching someone else play a video game and being one of the players of the video game. If you choose to not pray, if you choose to not be involved in prayer meetings, you are letting the world go by in its own direction. You're allowing the powers and principalities to just continue to flow. And ultimately, inevitably, you will get caught up with that. But if you stand and pray, you can change the direction of anything. And this is the truth, as he was saying. It's scientific and perhaps there's holes in the logic, but I think it's quite good. The four components of meaning in life, purpose, coherence, real transformation, and the flow state. As you stand and pray with other Christians, you experience a purpose like nothing else. You discover and rediscover why you're on this planet and where we are meant to be going. That comes all back to you as you sit there and pray. You might be timid. You might be nervous and not enjoy speaking out loud. That's fine. You don't have to contribute in that way to a prayer meeting. That's not the only meaningful thing. Some people talk for far too long and there's no time left for anyone else in a prayer meeting. But you being part of that is discovering your purpose. The coherence prayer meetings connect the dots. So often we don't have a clue about what's going on, even in our own lives, but also out there. As we gather to pray, the dots get connected and things start to make more sense. And actually, in charismatic prayer meetings, we often have a prophetic word for people. And that is almost like a puncture moment where God really breaks in and sort of those paintings where you paint by numbers and you paint in the gaps and you say, ah, now I see what that is. Prophetic words can be like that for a church. It connects the dots. It paints in the gaps. This transformation, I I just wonder, where else do you genuinely believe that you could be more transformed than gathering with God's people and for God's divine presence to erupt there? What, What other thing in life could transform you more than that? And then this flow state. This flow state is something that loads of people on, online and everything are talking about. Flow state. You get into the flow state with sport or with, uh, with work. It's just that moment when you feel deeply connected. Well, okay. The best that you can usually get in society is to become deeply connected with eggs. The created world. And that is a deep connection. Like, you watch a chef cook an egg. It's amazing. They're in the flow state of transforming eggs. But please, could there be anything more powerful than the flow state of being connected with your creator and experiencing his divine presence in amongst a prayer meeting with other people? So they were setting themselves up for something. They did exactly the right thing, is the point. When Jesus tests them and said, right, go away for nine days, what are you going to do? They prayed together. I just want to read this from Charles Spurgeon, if the band want to come up and get ready. Um, Spurgeon famously was one of the great preachers of the church, just down the road in Elephant and Castle. He says this about prayer meetings and the impact that they had. The prayer meeting, he says, is an institution which ought to be very precious to us and to be cherished by us as a church. 
for to it we owe everything. When our comparatively little chapel was all but empty, was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full? And when the church increased and the place was scarcely large enough, it was the prayer meeting that did it all. When we then met at Exeter Hall, we were a praying people indeed. And when we entered into an even larger arena, the Surrey Music Hall, what cries and tears went up to heaven for the success. And so it has been ever since. It is the spirit of prayer. It is in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the hair will be cut off from Samson's head and God's holy church will become weaker as water unless we continue mightily and earnestly in prayer. I don't think there's a greater invitation from God than allowing us the opportunity to pray together. So why don't we stand? We'll pray and then we'll worship. And then there is a prayer meeting after lunch. Don't feel false guilt and obligation to attend it. We understand people have things. What I'd love and what I've been praying for for this is that even one person would make it a major part of their life to join any prayer meeting that they can. And I was wondering, maybe some people have plans to start prayer meetings in their workplaces, gather together some Christians or universities or your community, your neighborhood, whatever it is. There would be nothing more powerful in your week than even a three-person prayer meeting. You could give it a go. I'm just going to pray from Psalm 145. If, like me, you have to lead some prayer meetings and you completely run out of ideas or get left in the lurch a little bit and suddenly have to come up with something, just open the Psalms and read from it. That's what I did earlier. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. And the eyes of all look to you, O God, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.